This week on A Lively Experiment, the mayor of Providence is putting quality of life issues front and center on his agenda. And highlights of a conversation that one of our panelists had this week with the House Speaker and Senate President about unfinished business. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for a Reporters Roundtable, Raymond Bakari, former editor of the Anchor newspaper at Rhode Island College, Providence Journal reporter Amy Russo, and Boston Globe reporter Ed Fitzpatrick. Hello and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. We will talk about the many bills in play at the State House a little later. But first, Providence Mayor Brett Smiley said this week he wants to enforce, enforce a noise ordinance that has been violated for years and reiterated his cracking down on illegal ATV use by crushing some of the confiscated vehicles for the cameras. Amy, let me begin with you. You cover Pro uh, Providence for the Providence Journal. Uh, I, as I saw the mayor doing this, I thought, well, maybe that's the cushion the blow on the residential tax increase that he wants. He wants to make your life a little bit better while he's raising taxes. But he does, he is fo focusing now on the quality of life stuff. Yeah, we heard a lot during the campaign about quality of life issues, snow removal, noise, all of these things, ATVs, and it looks like this mayor is following through on that promise. He's budgeted $100,000 for decibel readers and for an additional licensing inspector who will make sure businesses are in compliance. And of course, we had that ATV crushing event that Alorza did too during his time. I don't know how effective that is, but certainly the city's efforts to step up enforcement against illegal vehicles has been better than the past. Already more than 60 since April have been confiscated, 60 illegal vehicles, more than that. Um, whereas during the Alorza administration from 2020 to 2022, you had around 100. So it looks like this effort is becoming more intense. Noise is always tough in any city. I mean, that's kind of being in a city. I wonder, the devil's in the details with enforcement. Uh, what In your neighborhood, is noise an issue? Oh, it absolutely is. I There's nights where you have a car driving by at 2 or 3 a.m., and then they have the loud, bassy music, and my road's already caved in, so I'm not only feeling <laughs> the car drive by, but I'm also hearing loud music while I'm trying to sleep and then get up for my college course the next day. I apologized for that. I was <laughs> yeah, Ed, yeah I was Ed's got to uh, put a little uh, muffler on his muffler. So. But it's an interesting issue because we just recently interviewed on the podcast a Brown professor who's studying noise pollution, and she said that the noise in Providence is as loud as Boston. And, and, and is, uh, she correlated it with what neighborhood you live in. If it's more affluent, it's quieter. And so there's some social justice aspects to that. It, it was interesting. It's interesting. We have three, this is rare, we have three Providence residents here. I guess it depends how you go neighborhood by neighborhood. The big issue now is the leaf blowers, right? The backpack blowers? Yeah, leaf blowers, people complain about businesses, but I wonder also if some of the conversation with decibel readers is maybe missing the mark a little bit. If you talk to people like Erica, who is such an expert in uh, noise pollution, you also 
realize that infrastructure, obviously highways, loud traffic. We have the train station that's right in Providence. You hear trains rolling and I used to hear them from my apartment, which is on the east side and known to be one of the quieter areas in town. So um, I think there's a lot of bigger forces at play. And what about the mayor's budget? He came out and, you know, and Amy knows from talking to him regularly, he has been not so subtle in his criticism of Jorge Alorza, saying that they use a lot of the ARPA money for one-time spending. Now he says we've got to have a residential tax increase because we haven't for many years, but also to lower the commercial. So he got a little bit of blowback on that, thinking there'd be a trickle down for people in apartments. I'm not sure that's going to happen. And now he's getting some pushback on the council, too. Yeah, it sounded like he had a lot of people turning out to say with the cost of living we can't afford a tax increase it, that it, it's that he's going to face some heat over increasing the residential rate and bringing down the commercial rate uh, from the residents who vote uh, so yeah there's some peril in that he, he did get some praise from RIPEC about balancing uh, and you know making up for what the prior administration did so we'll see how that pans out with the with the whole tax situation, you're only going to get so much juice from that orange if you keep increasing taxes, especially from from the property taxes. There's going to have to be a serious conversation about the land that the nonprofits have that's on that's not being taxed. It's upwards, I think, 45 to 46 percent of the city. At some point, that's going to have to become a conversation where those or uh, groups, I mean. The, college, the private colleges are paying their fair share. And he's been having those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the pilot program is, the pilot agreement is ending this payment year. Payment so in lieu of taxes. Yep, yep. Payment in lieu of taxes, that's ending this year. But I think just taxing them would be better off because you're only going to get a drop in the bucket from what they should actually be paying, in my, in my opinion. The pushback on the city council a little bit. How do you, I mean, this is going to, Providence is always a little bit later than the state in terms of passing, but I've heard some rumblings on the city council. Is it enough or does the mayor have the votes? I know it's still got to go through finance and all of that, but mm-hmm. how does it look in terms of what, the reaction from city council mm-hmm. members to this dual, you know, up and down residential mm-hmm. and commercial? Well, I will say I spoke to Councilwoman Helen Anthony yesterday, the chair of the finance committee that's considering this budget. Um, she did not offer a firm position yet on the taxes, but she said any increase in that residential rate is going to be hard to stomach. So she knows what a burden it is. We have an unprecedented level of transparency this year with two public hearings on that budget, the first of which you saw, like Ed said, a lot of people came out and they said, hey, I can't pay for this. And we have to pay attention also to the demographics of those people. These were people of color. These were people who came from immigrant families. They were first-time homeowners. They were kids that were going to be the the first people in their family to go to college and they were all saying this is going to mess up the achievements that my family and I have fought so hard to make. All right. We will see uh, staying in Providence the death of longtime Senator Mary Ellen Goodwin has created a district one seat. Raymond I know you follow a lot of these. It's interesting we have three Democrats um, Michelle Rivera, uh, Terry Hassett, who was on the council for yep. years, and Jake Basilian, who is longtime. He's now the chief of staff for, coincidentally, for the uh, Senate president. And then on the Republican side, the number two, Nyoka Powell, right? Yep. So how do you, what do you, as you look at this race, what's your analysis? 
definitely look at the, the Democratic primary. It is a Democratic-leaning seat. Uh, Senator Goodwin had won it by a big margin over Nyoka Powell, who ran as an independent against her in 2022. I was actually reading your piece on when comparing where the candidates stand on the issues, and I found some interesting differences. For example, former Councilman Hassett sounded a bit on the side of not doing too much for Leobor reform, but encourages a review of it. Basilian obviously favors the reforms. And then uh, Michelle Rivera re uh, is in favor of a complete repeal. And then obviously Nyoka Powell is not really in favor of repeal or reform. And then the assault weapons ban, all three of the Democrats favor it. So just a little bit of, and then iGaming, that was definitely big in, uh, big differences. Rivera and Powell are against it, while Basilian and Hassett are for it. So I just found those differences in what they're favoring interesting. What's wrong with this picture? Jake Basilian makes well north of six figures as the chief of staff for the Senate president. My understanding is if he wins his seat, he can't do both, right? No, I mean, he's going to keep his position while he's running. And right, if he but wins, the Senate though, pays $17,000 uh, $17, a $17,000, that would be a heck of a pay cut, yeah. So um, why so, does he want to do that? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I guess he wants to be a member of the Senate. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see what he does for income after that. But, uh, but yeah, as Ray was pointing out, there was, I did a Q&A the other day uh, with the four candidates, and there was a wide range from Nyoka Powell on the right to Michelle Rivera on the left. And uh, they differed on all the uh, significant pieces of legislation that I asked about. Okay. A couple of nights ago, uh, Ed Fitzpatrick was sitting in my seat. They had a special taping with the Senate President Dominic Ruggiero and House Speaker Joe Sicarci. Uh, they called it unfinished business, and as Ed pointed out, it was not the Celtics who did not get the unfinished business done. Uh, heading into the home stretch, uh, just wanted to talk about what's in and out, and they broke some news. So they talked about he co-hosted with Jim Lutis, who was our colleague here at Rhode Island PBS. He does story in the public square. They talked about the bottle bill, the police Policeman's Bill of Rights and the Assault Weapons Ban. Here's a little bit from that podcast. Senator, the uh, environmental groups have made uh, a bottle bill uh, a priority for this year. And nearby states such as Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York all have uh, bottle uh, container deposit laws on the books and have for decades. Is this the year that Rhode Island joins them? And do you think that's a good idea? Well, I, I think we have to take a, a real good look at how we handle plastics as far as uh, uh, bottles, uh, 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 nips, uh, and any kind of plastic uh, uh, items that, uh, that we can recycle. Uh, there are some programs out there, especially in Europe, where they have some uh, level of expertise as to how to do that. Uh, so we're looking at everything. I don't think we're ready for a bottle bill this year, uh, but what I would like to see is probably establish a commission to study that and to take a look at the, what other communities do, what other countries do. More than three years have passed since George Floyd was murdered, murdered at the hands of Minneapolis police, but despite calls for change, Rhode Island has not changed the Law Enforcement Officer's Bill of Rights, known as Leah Bohr. Speakers, this the year? I believe you will see uh, some action on LIBOR. I'm not 100% uh, committed, but I think we're closer than we've ever been. And I think uh, the Senate's done, like I said earlier, they've done a good work on this with a study commission. And uh, they're coming together on a bill. We've been in consultation with them. I think you'll see some action on LIBOR today. Advocates in Rhode Island are calling for the Assembly to pass uh, an assault weapons ban. Do you agree with uh, that position to, to ban assault weapons uh, in Rhode I, Island? I, I think if you're going to ban assault weapons, you have to ban it nationally. Uh, I mean, you can't have Massachusetts. Hmm? Uh, obviously, some people disagree. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you can't, I mean, if, if you, 
Iowa, if they don't if they don't ban it, I mean, someone can go there and buy an assault weapon and come to Rhode Island or come wherever. I think you have to do it on a national level. So we are taping on a Friday morning the budget, which is always the key logjam. They're going to uh, supposedly put it up for the House Finance Committee tonight, and then really, Ed, it begins to, to go from there. You really broke some news here because the bottle bill is out. There's been a lot of environmental groups on that. To me, the assault weapons ban, which, you know, every day you kind of have the, the, uh, the Second Amendment people up there pro and con. Did that surprise you when they immediately they said out, or had you been hearing that? Well, there'd been a real high-profile push for the assault weapons ban this year. We had the governor get together with the national executive director of Moms Demand Action. And, and all the state officers, And all right? the state statewide officers were pushing for it the, uh, just a few weeks ago up at the stateroom. Um, but the, uh, you know, it was clear that the Senate president is not in favor of that. So that was news. That that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And they, were, they voiced no support for any gun bills this year. They did pass three last year. So I, I, it didn't. It, the prospects for that legislation don't look good. It was almost like you had your three last year. Don't be you know don't be greedy. When yeah. you coming back for more. But did, don't you think that Uvalde really pushed that narrative last year? They weren't going to do any gun legislation, and then Uvalde happened in. May. They did, but I mean, just over the Memorial Day weekend, there were there were mass shootings with uh, a good number of peop people being killed. So it's not like that stopped. Right. I'm honestly surprised that there's not a commitment on that bill, especially as Ed had mentioned. There's a lot of support from all five of the statewide officers, and there's been uh, events where they do press conferences, where they did the press conference introducing the bills, and there was a lot of energy in the room. So I'm surprised that there's not a commitment. Budget's always an issue, and the you know they always say as goes Providence goes the rest of the mm -hmm. state, and uh, it's interesting because I think the state there's some storm clouds on the horizon in terms of how maybe not this year, but as the federal money runs out, that's going to be problematic. Absolutely, and I think the state is facing some of the same challenges that Providence is facing. That RIPEC analysis said that hey, well we're spending a lot of money in this year's upcoming budget, uh, and Providence is kind of taking a second look too at what kind of one-time federal funds did it commit to a bunch of projects that it might not be able to fully fund now. Things like guaranteed income uh, pilot that Mayor Lorza had done, that's discontinued by this mayor. Reparations is getting a second look. So, uh, Raymond, I wonder, as the budget, uh, we had talked with, uh, when you were on here, it looks like the, the HOPE scholarship, which directly affects Rick, is going to be out this year. And I think that's probably not a surprise because the May Revenue Estimating Conference came in a little. Explain for the people who don't know what that is, what that would have done for Rick students, and maybe that'll be down the line. It, yeah, it would be disappointing if it's on the chopping block and doesn't go through in the budget, especially considering the governor put in a budget amendment for it, and you had support from uh, Rep. McNamara, who's the Democratic Party chair. But to explain what the HOPE scholarship is, it would uh, subsidize the last two years of tuition for the junior and senior years for RIC students. If you didn't get the Promise scholarship, you would get, you'd be able to qualify for this. If you met certain criteria, such as 60 credits, uh, in-state tuition, being in a 2.5 GPA, good academic standing, things of that nature. I thought it it was interesting that I listened to, and, and just give a plug as to when people can watch this or listen to it. When are you going to drop the podcast? The podcast is up now. Oh, it uh, is now. On the, on the Globe Rhode Island website, and it's on Rhode Island PBS has it up on YouTube in full. Great. So if you so as I was watching it, it was interesting. There was a discussion about the money following the the student rather than the institution. Yeah, Jim Lutis from Salve Regina University asked about that, saying, you know, there are students in Rhode Island who, who go to private universities. Universities, not not all of them are affluent. Could, could some of the money uh, 
follow them wherever they go. And uh, I didn't hear any support for that idea. What else did you take out of that podcast? You you had a, uh, 45 minutes just with the speaker and the Senate president, and then you had Wendy Schiller, who's obviously a panelist here, kind of do the analysis. What other takeaways? Yeah, did we you have we from that? you know we uh, learned something about some of the key pieces of legislation that they're going to be deciding on in the next three weeks. And one of them was the that there probably is going to be some action this year on on the shore access legislation and the house and senate have different versions but i can't wait to see what the finished product's going to be because that's a that's a head i mean your head you start to get a headache when you realize all the different permutations of that and where the mean high tide line is and all of that right yeah yeah it's going to be difficult and they have two different versions and what what uh what where are they going to draw that line in the sand literally so uh, there, there was also, uh, you know, it looks like the, the assault weapons ban is going nowhere. The bottle bill is going nowhere. Uh, Senator Ruggiero was opposed to uh, ending the exemption that allows smoking within the two casinos. Uh, the, the unions and the workers have been calling for that to end, saying it's unhealthy for years. I thought that was a bit of a tin ear. He said, well, you know, they took the employment, and that's if they want the jobs, they've got to put up with the smoke. I mean, you could have said that in 1950, but this is 2023. Don't you think it sounded a little yeah, insensitive I mean, to the workers out there? He, 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 tr- he said, well, he's afraid of losing revenue. And I pointed out that Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods casinos don't allow smoking, and they seem to be doing fine. Yeah. Some of the biggest casinos in, in the country. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's only a matter of time before that eventually ends. Um, but, and, the, you know, also, as you pointed out, Leobor, that they're uh, close to having some agreement after three years uh, to, to change that law. What do you see you're looking at, Raymond? Uh, hopefully the, the Rick bills would, would, will uh, end up on the, in the final product. Yeah, don't hold school. your breath. <laughs> um, I'm sorry to break it to you, but uh, if I was a betting man, as Ruggiero, so if I was a betting man, which I am, <laughs> I would say don't hold your breath, but maybe we'll keep our fingers crossed for the Rick students. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully the Hope Scholarship and the Cybersecurity Institute ends up passing. I, I mean, being a Rick guy, I mean, I'm kind of rooting for that one. But, yeah, I'm definitely looking at Leah Bohr, and um, I was looking at the assault weapons ban until that, that news was broken. That still surprises me. Anything you're keeping an eye on up at the state house? Yeah, I am looking at education on the statewide level, um, specifically uh, what is being spent on school safety these days. Earlier we talked about Uvalde and whether that could be a catalyst for any kind of change. Um, And it certainly was uh, last year in terms of funding. After Uvalde, uh, the state had said that schools could do their own review of their security measures. And if they had anything they wanted to add, the state would contribute up to $5 million Uh, to different districts to do that. So I think that funding piece uh, has been playing out now. You see schools adding different pieces of safety, um, reinforced doors, shatterproof glass that um, is really changing the game for them. But like the ARPA money, there was, you know, it's kind of hard to get an accounting of who's spending what where. And Amy had a great article in the journal about this. Now, some people, oh, we don't want to talk about it because of security. I've heard the alternate argument that if you have security, you want to kind of broadcast to the world to say, hey, don't try to get into these buildings because we've done X, X, and X. Not surprisingly, government is always a little bit 
hesitant when you were talking to some communities. They said, well, we don't really want to talk about what we've done for security, right? Right, exactly. I mean, that's understandable. Not every school wants to share what they're up to. So, you know, you had some districts that said, yeah, we've been spending. We'd rather not get into specifics. Um, but there were a handful that were able to give broadly the number of improvements they've made, what they've spent, what they're looking at, and, and things they hope to do. And do you future. find that most districts have taken advantage of that money, or there's still money to be used? It's always in the execution, right? Has a, a bunch of the money spent, or is it still waiting to be played out? Um, I think it's it's been spent, but there are districts that are saying they're hoping to do more in the future. They're hoping to upgrade even more. So not everybody's, you know, done a full, complete renovation of their school with lots of new technology. Some of it's just adding security cameras here and there. So there's different levels of activity there. And there was the issue. Remember last year we talked about arming campus police officers mm -hmm. at RIC. Did that go anywhere or not? Not to my knowledge. Yeah. And, and fortifying schools has always been a big deal, and it, it kind of makes you wonder. I mean, your kids are out of public school. Oh, no, you have one in public school, right? Yeah, my youngest son's still at Classical. So as you look at that statewide, what do you think about the progress that's been made? Um, you know, yeah, there's, they've put a lot of money into increasing the security at the, at the schools, and I think that'll, that'll continue. Um, but I, I think it's only one way to address the, the, the whole issue of, of security there. All right. Finally, an issue near and dear to our heart, as this is a reporter's uh, panel, the Access to Public Records Act, which governs not only for reporters, but for all of you who want to get uh, government documents and a whole slate of other things. For the first time in 10 years, there are proposed major revisions. Ed, you, I know you and I have both been talking to Senator De Palma. We won't get into chapter and verse, but basically it's getting down to crunch time. And Governor McKee's office put up a whole objection to releasing. They said it's too burdensome. The police chiefs are worried about internal investigations and reports and body cams. So, you know, you're with the New England First Amendment Coalition. What are you thinking as we head to the crunch time on APRA? Yeah, you're right. Senator Palmer has made this one of his legislative priorities, and it has faced opposition from uh, Governor McKee, from the state police. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of it in the next uh, three weeks. Uh, you know, it would make some important changes to a law that has not been updated updated in years to reflect the technology, to get access to emails, uh, to get access to 911 calls, to define what a police narrative is so that we, we find out what really happened when people are arrested. Uh, th there's a lot of uh, important open government measures in that piece of legislation. It would increase fines. Uh, for willful and knowing violations um, of the uh, Access to Public Records Act. So, uh, yeah, I'm keeping a close eye on that in the closing days of the session. We all have our war stories, Amy, about trying to get records. Do you have any uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, well, I would say broadly one thing that's um, really a barrier are the costs that are sometimes associated um, with obtaining public records. It's not something I'm used to encountering as a journalist, um, but I will say a few months ago requesting some records from the Providence Public School District uh, the journal was almost charged about $1,000 before um, the mayor's office stepped in and um, helped us to get those records. Almost seems like a deterrent, right? Yes. You can do this, and then you got then the average Joe is going to think, do we really want to spend that money? Is it worth it? Right, right. So I guess I worry a little bit less about journalists and more about, well, if there's the average person or maybe a nonprofit group or somebody who wants to get records that maybe doesn't have the chance to spend that kind of money on them, what's going to happen to their request? 
I personally haven't had any horror stories yet with the with APRA or when it comes to making just these dealing requests. with the Rick administration. <laughs> Luckily, they're not sending us emails where everything's blacked out and redacted. But just seeing the the horror stories where you have to fax in a request, you can't get an email in 2023. At the end of the day, it's also public dollars. Like we talked about last time when we talked about APRA with um, Antonia and, and Amanda, it's public dollars, and transparency is always key. We're on the side of the taxpayers at the end of the day. It was refreshing to see Attorney General Narona a couple of months ago sent. He basically said, because I had had some private discussions with him, I saw um, one of the reporters who said that he needed to, maybe it was Brian Amaral, he had to like, he had to like send a letter to somebody. They couldn't use email. And Narona said, hey, public bodies, get with the program. We're in 2023. So I thought that was an encouraging sign. Oh, yeah. I think uh, Peter Narona, uh, more so than uh, some of his media predecessors, has been really good on emphasizing the need for, for access to public records and open meetings. He, he's, you know, invited NEFAC to take part in the Open Government Summit at Roger Williams University every year. He, he, he's definitely sending the right signals, and he's got a, a pulpit to do, a bully pulpit to do that, so I give him credit for that. Uh, there is a big backlog of... Uh, of, of public records cases, appeals, and he says, you know, we don't have the uh, we don't have the staff to deal with that. That's a that's a big problem that needs to be addressed. I mean, he's asked the uh, administration for more funding to hire more people to do that, but you know, we can't have that backlog and and uh, get timely access to records that we should because have. Because the public, so they say, and I just uh, filed a public records request for a story that I'm working on down the line. If you disagree with any of this, you can appeal it. Well, they know if it goes to the attorney general, you can appeal it first to them, but if right. it ultimately goes to the attorney general's office, they just run out the clock, right? Yeah, it, if it takes years to get uh, something, it's not going to be news in a year, uh, or might not be. So, yeah, I mean, that, that delay is a problem. Okay. Let's go to outrages uh, and or kudos. Mr. Picari, let's begin with you this week. So yesterday was the first game of the NBA Finals, and the Celtics were not in it after losing in Game 7 to the Heat. That's my outrage. Outrage, depression, you could put it into a bunch of different stuff. That's a that's a whole thing. Celtics Nation is going to be having a very long offseason. Ed, what do you have this year? Oh, it's, I share the same outrage uh, <laughs> over the Celtics. I expected this was the year they were going to win a championship, and uh, I was disappointed to see them uh, come up short in Game 7. But I also want to give kudos to Ray uh, as a student journalist getting after it. It gives me hope for the future of journalism. Thank Is you. there a few, hope for the future? Maybe we'll have a couple of minutes. We'll have the old timers give Raymond maybe some tips if we have time. <laughs> and, and he will run into some uh, access to public records. I'm sure he will. Soon enough. And I didn't say it earlier, Amy. This is your debut. Welcome. Amy's been with Thank the you. Journal the last couple of years. You've read her column about doing various things all over Rhode Island, uh, covering Providence and obviously education now. So welcome. Do you have an outrage or a kudos? This yeah, uh, kudos to Providence Police. Last night uh, they submitted their two reports on how flock safety cameras are operating, the number of hits they're getting. Um, and I believe those reports were delayed in getting to the council, and now they're with the council, so I think that's great that they made good on that. And those cameras had been a little bit controversial. The ACLU had put up some issues about their concern, but they are using those in, what they've been able to use those in solving some crimes, right? Yeah, it seems they're pretty effective. I think it was WPRI that had a report on how they're working right now, now that they're up and running. So, I mean, it sounds like the initial stats are are decent um, and that they're becoming an asset to the city but from, is some concern I guess. from a First Amendment standpoint flock cameras 
Oh yeah, I think we should have access to those records. You mm -hmm. know, they're they're just like the body cameras. We we should have a policy that gives you timely access to them. There was a whole long discussion about when the uh, police body cam, body worn cameras came out. I found it interesting in that case with the Cranston City Councilman. That went through. Now, some of that may be politics, some might not be. But, man, this is the one where the guy was pulled over. He had the crack pipe, and he's since resigned. And that had a whole other issue with it. But I thought it was interesting, Ed, that that body camera stuff was out there within a day or two. It can why, really can't, why can't? And it shows you exactly what happened, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, it shows you what happened, and you got instantaneous access, answered all the questions people might have about what happened, and that should be that should be the standard. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you get, depending on the agency, depending on the circumstances, you get a lot of delay, and, uh, you know, it's under investigation. Okay. But, Folks, that is all the time we have. It's a quick 30 minutes. Ed and Raymond and Amy, welcome. We hope to have you back. Uh, folks, if you can't get to us, uh, if you don't watch us live Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we are all over social media. We archive all of our shows at ripbs.org slash lively. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And we have our own podcast. Ed, a little competition for you. Uh, so wherever you are, if you're on a run or in the car, just uh, pull us up wherever you get your favorite podcast. By this time next week, we'll know what the budget is. We will have a full analysis and everything else that goes on at the General Assembly. Thank you for watching and come back next week as a lively experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.